a choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a rock. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expounding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very profound. Expanding reality. so cool to see you, man. Um, author of 3,001 Books and Counting. Uh, your first episode on the show, 173, as well as the contact panel thing that you did with us will be linked down below so that people can check those out. Man, uh, you've just written some fascinating books, and then I mentioned the fact that you've been on before because we can skip the backstory thing, dude. We can just get to the how you doings, and folks can check the first episode for the backstory and all that, right? So what have you been doing, man? What have you been up to? Well, keeping busy, you know, trying to maintain the house. That always takes up a bunch of your time. <laughs> Just trying to, you know, run the whole household and keep your life going. But yeah, it's going good. I mean, we got chickens, so we're getting our own fresh eggs now. And I'm always interviewing people and trying to publicize the latest book that I put out and just having fun, you know, researching and writing. I love it. Well, you got chicken, so uh, let me ask, how, how's that going? Uh, did you go the tractor supply route and just go buy a handful of chickens and then raise them in a brooder and then stick them outside in a pen? Yep, tractor yeah. supply. That's where we went, actually. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's, right. It's funny okay, you said so that because we have, have you discovered... little, little tiny babies. And uh... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you walk by, they're right there. I get it. I absolutely get it. Um, <laughs> too cute have, to pass up. You, you can't. And so when you went in, what was your initial number where you said, this is how many we're getting? Uh, we got six total. We ended up keeping just four of them because two went a little wild and we're beating up on everybody and mm. we could, couldn't have that. You know, so. are you in a place where you can have a rooster? Yes, we do have a rooster. Okay, we you do. Him, we call him Little Pecker. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. He is, okay. He's a you... pecker for sure. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> They're supposed to be. And that's what's interesting about that pecking order thing. I was going to mention if you don't have a lot of some folks that find the issue with and we're going to talk about UFOs, everybody. Some folks that find the uh, issue of having chickens in, in that situation is all they have is hens. And so the HOA or whatever won't allow them to have a rooster for the obvious reason, the, the morning greeting that they have. But uh, what will occur in an all female environment in hens, especially, and this is where the term pecking order comes from, is because the hens will assume the role of a rooster and then some will just gang up on another. And uh, we've had one that uh, got her eye pecked out. We had a one-eyed chicken running around here. We found that by integrating roosters and keeping it balanced based on the number of hens, like a couple of roosters per certain number of hens, things balance out and calm down and they quit beating each other up because there's balance restored. There's sort of this energetic component that's missing in an all hen environment. Have you, what do you think of that? Or have you experienced that? Yeah, we absolutely noticed it <laughs> right away. The, the pecking order was a little bit up in arms when there was three roosters and three hens, but now with one rooster and three hens, 
we're good. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. You find that balance and then, and then, uh, you'll get, ch- how long have you had chickens? I promise we're going to talk about UFOs. Um, well, let's see. Almost a year. It's approaching a year. Not quite, but we've been getting eggs now for four or five months. It's amazing. Have you hatched any yourself? Not yet, but I'm okay. looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah. I was about to say, it's interesting. The thing called chicken math. Usually you go in with like, okay, we're going to get three chickens and then you walk out with 12 and the next week you come back with 15 more. It's this interesting where they just seem to multiply. Yeah, and we gave them the high end green or not greenhouse. We have a greenhouse, but uh chicken coop the coop yeah hell yeah it gets cold here you know it snowed last night actually first time well i was gonna say this year but yeah first time this year (laughs) it's only been what 10 days for this year but first time this winter according to the gregorian some would say that uh, march 19th is the first day of the new year but you know either way so technically it's either still snowing this year and uh maybe that's what's going on or yeah man you've got a you got to snow this year that's wild so speaking of ufos which we've been teasing this entire time have you seen any out where you are lately no i haven't the last ufo i saw was back in california and now i'm of course in the blue ridge mountains of georgia I haven't seen any uh but that's okay because i've had a lot of sightings throughout my life i know they watch over me every now and then i get good indication of that so been a while though since i've had a really good sighting wow um well out there in blue ridge there's um, a little town called mineral bluff is that right i mean it's a small little town out there and it's got like the darkest skies this guy named les durant lives out there do you know him you guys live like probably around the corner from each other i love him okay we haven't connected uh, personally but certainly i've heard of him he's out there filming ufos some interesting things, man. We had him on, and he says it out there that the darkest skies, apparently, uh, some some in some amount of the country, it's just really dark skies out there. So you guys have a, a really great shot at seeing some UFOs. Yeah, I love it. You know, when I lived in L.A. or the L.A. area, you couldn't see only a few stars. You'd have to go out into the desert, and then, of course, you could. But here, it's every night. You can walk out on the porch, and there's the Milky Way. It's amazing. It's awesome. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Not a lot of people uh, get her. If they do, they maybe take it for granted. So just remind you that this place is kind of dope amongst all the chaos, right? So you had mentioned whenever I'd uh, reached out to you to bring you back on uh, for a conversation here that you wanted to talk about onboard UFO encounters. Now, it's a book that you've written, but I'm very curious to know just what made you want to write the book in the first place? And then what are some of your craziest onboard UFO encounters? Oh, I really enjoy that type of encounter. You know, all UFO encounters, I think, are undeniably interesting. <laughs> a simple sighting can absolutely change a person's life. And there was no communication. It's just even a light in the sky darting around or hovering or d- darting off. And, of course, people experience UFO landings or a face-to-face encounter or ETs come into their room. And I mean, there's all different types of encounters people can have. But when a person is taken on board a craft... I mean, all bets are off. There is no possible chance of misperception here. You're surrounded by, quote, the UFO phenomenon. I mean, you're in it. (laughs) You are enveloped in it. You can feel it, hear it, taste it. All the senses are involved. So that is important because there's so much talk about, oh, you misperceived this or, you know, could have been a reflection or this or that. That's just not true with these onboard cases. 
I really wanted to focus on cases where people weren't necessarily relying solely on hypnotic regression because there's controversy surrounding that too. Not that I don't support it. I think it works used correctly, uh, but there's absolutely some problems with it. Um, witnesses will tell you, uh, certainly hypnotherapists will tell you it's not always 100% reliable. So a lot, pretty much most of the cases I have in the book are fully conscious cases. And yeah, the onboard experiences, that's where the, it's the heart of the phenomenon. It's the core. This is where all the answers are. And I was collecting a lot of these cases. I thought, you know, this would be a good theme. This would be a really cohesive theme to explore. And I think I was right because it ended up being my most popular book so far. It's my best seller. Though I have to say Symmetry is right up nipping on its heels, uh, which is another book all about one contactee who's had fully conscious onboard experiences. But yeah, I, that one is dear to my heart. It came out when the pandemic struck. And I didn't, you never know how the, a book is going to do. You know, it might completely flop or it might do well, but this one seemed to really resonate with people. Well, it's such a cool thing. And you're right. It is where the rubber meets the road, as it were, astrally for the phenomena. It's where you are in a completely different space. And I want to talk to you a little bit about the implications of that, some of the observations of that as well. But now you're talking also, you know, I mean, and maybe you've got another book planned for what they do with you when they get you on craft, if they take you somewhere like the Thaluba prophecy or something like Outer Worlds or uh, something like that, Encounters aliens taking you to other places kind of book. Um, and it's interesting though, then I'm, I'm, I'm curious, precedent. I've got a ton of questions, but if you don't mind, my friend, just set us up with a couple of uh, your favorite examples. Okay. Well, there's one case that I found really interesting it involves a lady from Louisiana. Her name is Pat Cates. And she contacted me because no, nobody seemed to be interested in her story. She reported it to MUFON and it just kind of sat there. And she finally found me. And of course, I was interested. Her story was amazing. Yeah. She had, you know, the typical experiences of the young kid, gray type beings coming into her room. And eventually, I mean, as an adult, these experiences continued. Once she came home, the, and the gray, she doesn't call them that. She calls them people. Uh, and it confused me. Point, one point she's like well the man was in my house i'm like well when you say the man what do you mean she's like, well the grays what you call the grays but to me they're just people and i liked that because it showed how she had moved you know developed in her relationship with them it wasn't something she feared so much uh but she walked into her house one day and they were sitting there or in the living room and one had a uh type suit on, high coat, the whole deal. She looked at it in absolute shock and started laughing. <laughs> and, you know, I have a few other cases like that. Whitley Strieber talked about that. Uh, and it's very rare. <laughs> she had about never heard of it. aliens in tuxedos or just yes. formal wear yeah. in general? Just a tuxedo or a tie or a suit, a zoot suit, you name it. What's There's the a explanation that they give for wearing it? Uh, well, nobody really knows for sure. Of course. I just, but she just said, you know, I felt like they had done that to sort of reduce the fear level. Because 
And that was kind of my theory as well. And it certainly worked because she started laughing. So she had, a, I mean, she was really interesting to interview. <laughs> she was once on board and she's waiting in the room on this little bench. You know, it's a rounded room, little bench on the side. And in walk these childlike greys. She's still a little bit nervous at this point. And they walk right over to and sit right next to her. And she turns to them and says, what the heck? <laughs> There's so much room in here. There's seats everywhere. I'm sitting here. Why are you sitting in my spot? And they looked at her and said, well, you're sitting in our spot. This is where we sit. <laughs> so she had, you know, a good interaction with these guys. They would communicate with her. But for me, you know, she's trying to come to terms with all this because it's a big deal when you're having all this. And generally speaking, people in the beginning will wonder if they're going crazy. Are they imagining this? What is going on? And she was working through that when she had this amazing experience where she, this is kind of a complicated story. So I'm going to just shorten it a little bit because it's, I mean, I could do a whole hour on just this lady's experiences, honestly. But she woke up and found herself standing next to a UFO. There was a human looking ET next to her, some grays. It's a massive craft with a little ramp going down and people walking up and down. And there was another one a couple hundred yards away, a, a huge craft. And this human-looking ET, dark hair, short, blue jumpsuit, um, says, we need to go down to that village there and get some people. She said, okay. And she looks down at this village and she can immediately recognize this is not the U.S., this looks more like Mexico or South America somewhere. It's a village with lots of short little adobe type colorful structures, but pretty big. And so they go down, they walk into a house and they pull out the father, the mother, the son. Everyone dutifully follows them. No questions asked. She's not asking any questions. She's kind of in this slightly, I don't want to say altered state of consciousness, but a little bit different. And I mean, she's just... Let's do this. <laughs> and started pulling people out and bringing them up to this craft, which was three levels. And they did this all night, basically. And finally, the, this craft was filled up with, she, she estimates several hundred up to a thousand people, maybe more. And everyone was very cooperative. And she goes up to the third level. She's allowed to. The others aren't. And she can see all grays, all different types of humanities of all ethnicities. And at some point, all the activity stops, the ramp goes up, and there's, they say, watch. And boom, there is a massive volcanic eruption some distance away, not too far. But it sends up this huge plume and this pyroclastic flow of mud and ice and debris comes flowing over this town and buries it. And they rescued people during this period and after. They were pulling people out of the mud and the whole deal and finally lifted off. And next thing she knows, this craft or a smaller one is landing at the end of her driveway in Louisiana. And they say, go into your room. You know, they, they lead her into her room and she falls asleep, wakes up the next morning and calls her friend. Says, you're not going to believe it. I had one of my quote UFO dreams and starts explaining all of this because this was a, you know, a crazy experience. And her friend's like, Pat, 
you need to hang up the phone right now, go to your TV and turn it on. And Pat's like, what are you talking about? She's just do it. So she hangs up the phone and turns on the TV. Turned out the Nevado del Ruiz volcano had exploded. This is, I think, November 1986. And I just so happen to have a book on that. I'm all into disasters, <laughs> volcanic explosions, you name it, shipwrecks. And I, I have that book. And so I'm pretty familiar with this particular volcanic eruption. And she's watching her experience on TV. She sees this town, which turned out to be the town of Armero in Colombia. And this volcano, Nevado del Ruiz, erupted and buried this town in about 30 feet of mud and debris, killing 27,000 people. But some of them were apparently rescued. This is what she re recalled. And I know of other cases like this where people's lives have been saved, uh, not at this scale. Um, but yeah, this does happen. There are other examples of it. But this was so interesting to me because I got to talk to the witness firsthand. It really upset her. I mean, she ended up going to therapy about it. Turned out it was a government therapist. And he's like, well, you know, I've heard other people describe these things. <laughs> he was familiar with it, which really shocked her. But she ended up stopping going to therapy because the therapist was so interested in her because she had the psych psychic ability and she was predicting all of these things in his life. And he started just testing her all the time because <laughs> he was he she told him, you know, your wife is doing this or that or you have this problem at work or this issue. She was able to she's very, very psychic. So that was one of my favorite cases in the book, just because it's. I mean, it's off the charts. It's definitely an outlier. It, it's so many questions, Preston. So many. So 27,000 people died, but you say about 1,000 were saved. Is that right? But, but on this one UFO. Now, were there multiple UFOs or did she recall that? Yeah, there were two UFOs and she said it could have been upwards of 3,000, 4,000. She's not sure. Uh, it was a lot of people. And I asked her, I'm like, well, what do you think happened to these people? <laughs> And she says, well, I don't know. You know, I couldn't tell you. I don't think that they were put back on Earth because that's going to cause all kinds of questions. And, you know, are they going to have any memory of it? I mean, what's going on here? Uh, you know, and in another, you know, I mentioned the book Symmetry. Uh, that's with Dolly Safran, who's a contactee. She's kind of become my go-to gal because she's fully conscious, doesn't need hypnosis, has no fear of encounters, has worked with the ETs very, very closely since age 14, all the way up. She's now in her 60s. So we're talking thousands of encounters, literally hundreds per year. And I asked her about this. I'm like, has this ever happened? Have you heard of this? And she's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she's participated in a few of these mass rescues. And she mentioned specifically like plane crash. She, she's really not at liberty to say which one. But yeah, people have been rescued from disasters where their remains won't be able to be traced or missed necessarily. And you can pull them out without causing, you know, problems with officialdom, I guess. So this is something that does happen. I mean, she described another case where a lady was in a house fire and badly burned and they pulled her out. The ETs did and healed her. And she's like, I don't want to go back. <laughs> 
And they said, well, we don't normally do that, but in your case, it's okay because they're not going to be able to find any trace of you anyway. So, all right. She went to live with the ETs or was transplanted to another world. No, this sounds like science fiction to skeptics, but I'm telling you, I believe it. I know this is going on. I've got enough examples of it. There's a lot of missing people in the world, too, that we don't know where what's happening to them. And I have other cases where people have been or gone to live with the ETs. Um, and real quick, there was another case. <laughs> it's a bit of a tangent, but man, oh man, it's such an interesting story. This guy I interviewed, Tony is his name, had a group of friends. They're all in their, you know, 19, 20, 21 years old, 22. And they would go out to Palm Springs in Southern California because one of them had parents who owned a cabin. And they just go up there and drink beers, hike around, and spend the weekend there. And one of the guys' name is Paul. I, ha I have his last name. I know exactly who he is. But I'm not using his name <laughs> because of what happened. Uh, his last name. They went up there. This is, let's see, 1978, I believe it was, 79. And Paul's like, I'm going to take a hike, guys. I'll be back in an hour. And this is a wilderness area. He's gone for like two or three hours. And they're like, well, gosh, we're going to have to send out a search party. Where's Paul? What's going on? And they were gathering everything and getting ready. It's, it's nighttime, right? And in walks Paul. He's like, guys, you're not going to believe what happened to me. I came upon a landed UFO. And everyone's like, ah, shut up. You know, Tony, the guy I interviewed, has had some paranormal experiences. He's always believed in UFOs. No, knows Paul is not a joker and asked him about it. Of course, all the guys started listening as Paul describes coming upon this UFO, which had landed at the base of a cliff. And there were these basically human looking ETs. He said they were bald. They did have large, dark eyes, very pale skin, thin mouths. I think we might call them gray human hybrids. That's what they look like, but white jumpsuits. And he walked up to them. They were very accommodating, very friendly, and started talking to him and said, yeah, we're studying this area right now. We're studying the wildlife. Would you like to come on board? And he's like, sure. He went on board. He said, there's nothing really in there. It was just a clean, white, round room. Everything was spotless. Everything was pretty much white except for the darks of their eyes. And they said, you know, if you'd like, you can come with us. And he said, really? They said, yes, but the thing is, you won't be able to come back. And he's like, oh, well, no, I don't think I can do that. I'm not ready for that. And they said, oh, well, okay, that's fine. But we are going to be here next year at this time, on this day. So if you change your mind, we will be here. And Why can't said, you just okay. drop me off next year then? Like, give me a year, <laughs> right? not forever, right? If you're going to be back, swing back by, right? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if he asked that or not, uh, but what I do know is he declined the invitation, told everyone this story, and they're like, oh, my God, are you serious? Like, listen, I'm dead serious. This happened. So they go home, and a year goes by, almost, and he starts giving away his stuff to all his friends. And, you know, he quit his job. And Tony goes up to him and says, Paul, what are you doing? Are you thinking going out there and he's like well yeah i thought i would and tony's like well are you going to go with them 
And Paul's like, well, I don't know. You know, I don't know. But the day came where he just drove off alone to that area and didn't come back. And so after a couple of days, Tony, the other friends and Paul's family drove out there and they found Paul's car with the keys in it. No trace of him. They called the police. The police searched the area, questioned everybody. Tony's like, well, this is the story he told us. <laughs> All of his friends told, said the same thing. Like, yeah, that's what he said. And they never found him. He never came back from wherever he went. So I have to believe he went to live with the ETs. I don't know, but it's not a completely unique case, but that's one I personally investigated. It's fascinating, man. You have the coolest, coolest stories, dude. I will say that. Now, what do you think going to live with the ETs means? Because kids are told when their dog's being put down that it's going to live on a farm. You know what I mean? So what what do you think we are as far as living with the ETs means? Do we have a nice habitat? Are we uh, in a glass enclosure for some alien kid? Are we food, you know, fuel? What What do you think our role is? don't think we're food or fuel or anything like that. You know, I know that there's a, some disinformation floating around in the field where ETs feed off our emotions or eat us for lunch or put us in, in cages. No, 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 no. I don't have any good reporting on that whatsoever. But I do have good reporting on people being placed on other worlds. Uh, and that's what I think is going on. And we don't have a whole lot of information on it because these people, of course, are not coming back. But I suspect he's having a good time, the adventure of his life, probably picked a job of some sort, whether it's counseling other people or helping to establish a more, you know, environmentally safe lifestyle. Uh, it's a mystery, but I imagine it's the adventure of a lifetime. Uh, there was another very famous case, uh, Frederick Valentik from Australia, who had a UFO come over him and he disappeared, never seen from again. It's another case over the Great Lakes. Uh, Felix Monkla, a young serviceman, was sent out to vector a UFO. They couldn't see it, but they, they had it on radar. His plane merged with the UFO. The UFO darts off. He's never seen again. So we don't know precisely what's happening with these people, but we're going with the ETs. That's clear. I personally think they're having the adventure of a lifetime. What about cases in areas like the um, Bermuda Triangle or portal regions where they say that you can be walking through the woods and if you walk between these two rocks on a certain day with this key in your pocket, which is made of a certain metal, you'll just teleport. Or maybe it's just a hole in reality somewhere where people slip in and out and maybe they slip out and don't ever come back. I think, you know, Flight 19 of um, the Bermuda Triangle uh, was one of the most you know, rememberable cases, but there's many, man, where like the, all, this whole missing 411 phenomena and things like that, it, it's interesting. So do you think that there's anything to that to also, it's like, yes, and it's aliens taking people off, uh, not using them for food, because one could say just devil's advocate for the other side, but, but I like your perspective. I like, I like your, the heart that you have in, with the phenomena. I think it's great what you do with the stories, what, how the, the passion you have for it. But devil's advocate could be that they knew that that volcano was going off and they just picked up a couple of thousand people for a snack rather than letting them all get killed. You know, why not send 20 ships and save 27,000 people? 
how did they select who to save? You know what I mean? It's like if it was indiscriminate and just block by block, then it would seem then that it was it, unimportant. You know what I mean? Which ones that they had. So then therefore one could say that just as unimportant as it is that they just gathered this amount of strawberries rather than the whole thing, right? So it's just an interesting perspective that some people have on the motives of those things. But we've also, like you said, heard some fascinating stories. Now, like near-death experiences, we have people that come back and actually tell us about it. What do you think is the reason that folks don't go out on an adventure and come back and tell people firsthand? Like they just stand up, do an interview, or come on the show or something and say, look, I went out on this amazing trip. They're not using us for food. I had a great time. Here's sort of what the setup is. Do you, do you think that that may be the next sort of way of disclosure or, or bridging with aliens is sort of this idea of these contactees that have been living dope lives and established deep relationships from a human perspective with these entities coming back? Do you think maybe that's possible? Yeah, and that's what the book Symmetry is really all about. I mean, she's been to their planet. You know, she's spent a lot of time there. But the problem is this, people who come back and tell these stories are fighting a uphill battle in terms of the skepticism, the disbelief and the disinformation and the media cover up. It's really difficult for people to come forward because uh, this, you know, you can, people have lost family members over this. This can create all kinds of strife. There's some folks on our planet who don't have our best interests in mind, you know, the folks behind the cover up. I think they've made some terrible choices. Uh, I don't think they have our best interests in mind, but I do know that they are following and tracking contactees and wreaking havoc. I've seen it firsthand and I know many, many examples of it. So this is why most don't talk about it. This happens far more often than I think people realize. But yeah, it absolutely is happening in large numbers. Uh, but people, People have learned just to keep quiet and not talk about it. There are some who have found the courage and feel like it's important that people know and will, you know, take the steps to share their story. And some regret it, but I think it's unfortunate that we're having to deal with this cover-up because it shouldn't be this way. And that's one of the reasons I do this research because you can say the ETs are here to take over or eat us for lunch or whatever, but prove it. Show me the firsthand information that leads to that conclusion in any way. Because I can march out case after case after case after case after case that I've personally investigated where I know exactly what happens when a person is taken on board. And it's nothing like that. It's all about healing. This is the scariest part for people, and this causes a lot of fear. They're laid out on a table, they're examined, the ETs are over them doing their thing. And people think, oh, they're experimenting on me, you know, they're hurting me. No, 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 they're healing you. This is one of the primary purposes, is to uphold people's DNA, because we're so poisoned. But, exactly. That had, I was the first guy to write about this in book form. I couldn't believe it. And now, that's 300 plus cases. I got twice that now. Just so you know. It's a beautiful so, book. I just sit there and pick up, pick it up and thumb through case. It's right here usually next to me. I, I really appreciate it. It's, it's my most important book in a way, I think, because it really drives it home. You cannot deny it that this is a primary 
reason for onboard experiences. How many cases do you need? Because they're coming from every major researcher out there, almost without exception. I mean, for real, think this through. No, they're not here to hurt us. The evidence doesn't show that at all. They're not here to eat us. Are you kidding? If you could fly anywhere in the universe, you had a craft that could basically traverse interstellar distances, would you really come to Earth to terrorize people? Why? And that depends on if it's a ubiquitous motive, you know what I mean? It's not to say that all of them, right? It's it's just to say that maybe they have a few bad representatives, you know, that wouldn't, like we do, right? In the U.S., we have representatives that we don't feel speak that is our true voice, but they're the loudest one that, that people put in front of the American flag. So there, there's just interesting correlations between motive and ubiquity. I, I, I think it's interesting to say that all of them anything, um, because none of all of anything anythings, right? Um, even even here on earth we have people that eat people and do horrible things to other people and that's not to say that all of us do that that's just to say that it's done here and so perhaps like you you do you you thumb through and find the most fascinating cases man of the most incredibly incredibly interesting cases that do uplift the fact that the phenomena has some some benevolence to it so i love the way that you look at it um but to say that all of it is anything i think is um I, I wouldn't be able to do that, but you look at it much, much closer than I do. Um, I tell you, you know, I'm not editing people's stories. I, I am factually reporting them. So these are the cases I'm getting. I'm, I don't get any cases of what I would call sadistic behavior or ETs torturing people or trying to scare them. I, they're just not there. I know that there are some cases out there in the literature and some researchers who I'm going to put that word in quotes. I don't think you're a researcher at all. I think you're a disinformation agent. I really do. Uh, because these, the stories they're putting out, don't match at all what I'm finding. Have and you ever heard I'm, of a guy named, go ahead, my apologies. Yeah, I'm really concerned about it because people are actually lapping some of the stuff, you know, right up. Fear sells for some reason. And it's not true. These, some of, there's disinformation. There's a very clever, concerted, well-funded, diabolical even, campaign to paint ETs in a bad light. Don't believe it. Don't believe a word our government says on this subject. You're here. You're a fool if you do, because they are lying, and we can prove it. If you want to know the truth about contact, go to the first-hand contactees. And you have to read enough stories so that you can get a consensus of what's going on here. It's all well and good to focus on a very scary story. And I get a few. I have to tell you, I talk to some people who don't like contact. They hate it. And I ask them, well, what happened to you? I'm like, well, you know, I didn't ask for this. I don't feel like I asked for this. It's very scary. They pulled me up. They examined me. I was fighting them the whole way. And that's all I really remember. But I think they're evil. Like, why do you think they're evil? Well, you know, they've held me down. I'm like, they held you down. Like, well, I couldn't move. I'm like, okay, well, that's different. Because <laughs> uh, they will do that if you are lashing out. Because I've had people who've, you know, punched ETs and kicked them and tried to scratch them and break their arms and so forth. And if you're going to act that way, well, you're going to be held down no matter where you are. Uh, so... 
yeah, I think there's probably some bad ETs out there, but they're like us and confined to a planet and probably not allowed <laughs> to traverse interstellar distances. Once you've overcome the political strife and the divisiveness and the immorality and all the horrible stuff that goes on on our planet, the things we do to each other is horrendous. Uh, you're not going to be able to achieve interstellar distances until you achieve some level of ethical and moral stability on your planet. And you're certainly not going to be allowed to, to wreak havoc throughout the universe. That's why I don't think the stories of that some of that we hear are true. And if you, you know, it's not just my research that's, I would point to John Mack. I would point to Barbara Lamb. I would point to Edith Fiore. I would point to Timothy Good. Um, these are some of the researchers who I think are doing good, honest work, because some aren't. And some are relying solely on hypnosis and have very fear-based accounts, because I think they themselves are probably a little fear-based. So you cannot be too careful when trying to discern the truth with this. You mentioned first-hand contactees, and there's a guy John Mack knew intimately, a guy named Peter Curry. Have you ever heard of his story? His story? Yeah. What do you no. think of Peter's uh, encounter? Um, he's been from Australia, right? Yes, Peter? sir. Yeah. Yeah, it's certainly interesting. He was able to get some genetic or a hair of an Couple ET of and had it genetically uh, <laughs> tested, which turned turned out to have some really interesting results. Uh, it's been a while since I, I have his book. I haven't read it in quite some time. I do remember he had an intimate encounter with one of these ETs. You could say which that. Which does certainly turn up. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is one of many, many stories. I think if it were just one person saying one thing, that's all well and good. But it's when you have hundreds of people. And that's what I mean by getting a consensus. You have to throw away the outliers to a certain extent. If one person is saying it, well, okay, well, it could be true. It might not be, but. Until you get 100, 200, 300 stories of people basically saying the same thing, and they don't know each other, then you're starting to make some real progress. Because now I can pretty much predict to a certain extent what a person's going to say when they say, I've been taken on board. And they know what the interior of a UFO looks like, you know what the tools they use, the way the ETs look, the dresses, the, you know, how they, uh, the clothes they wear, the procedures that take place. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. If, I can't really speak to Peter Corey's case because I honestly don't fully remember. <laughs> That's okay. We just had him on, man. It's very fresh. And so, I mean, I hit record, introduced him, and didn't talk for an hour and a half. And it was just account after account after an experience after experience. And a lot of it, he feels, is also sort of crossing into the world of demonic because he's got these scratches that will just appear on his legs and things. Like some really interesting things but he's has a lifetime of the freaky woo woo you know as a subtitle of the episode there speak so, to, to a certain extent real quick because when someone has contact they have a psychic awakening they are suddenly a beacon and they will have a onslaught of spiritual activity and poltergeist like activity and this is often them because what you will now have your whole um bio energetic field awakened and you're seeing shadow people and you're having mediumistic experiences and astral projection and i mean you have this onslaught of paranormal activity all around you 
And when someone comes back from an encounter, they can experience all of this poltergeist-like activity. And that's partly them, honestly. But you can draw in bad spirits because now you are a bright light to them. That is not the ETs doing that. This, these are demonic spirits are real. I've investigated demonic hauntings. That's a real thing. But ETs are not demonic. In my professional opinion, having studied hundreds of accounts, it's a completely separate phenomena. It's 100% real. It follows a very set pattern, a demonic haunting, which can lead to possession. And I've got three or four personal cases of that. I know it's real. Uh, people who, you know, I know, love and trust. I mean, one was, let me see, my sister-in-law's brother, who had an honest-to-God demonic attack. So, yeah, it's real, but it's not E.T., do you think some de demons can pose as ET and go through the whole rigmarole? Sort of like Jin, they can just materialize anything, so they could then come up with their own sort of demonic UFO and have this whole experience that the passenger feels like they're encountering a, an extraterrestrial experience. But it would just be like, um, I don't know, somebody posing as us and going over and doing something horrible on in, on our behalf, you know, wearing like a precedent mask and murdering a bunch of people. But it's not you, but it's something posing as you. Do you think that that's possible? And they can do it in a way that's very hard. Very for... limited extent. Okay. But they, uh, no, they cannot create a UFO with landing traces and implant you and heal you and all the things that is part of the UFO experience. Could they come into your room and appear as a gray? Possibly. But the demonic haunting starts usually when someone's messing around on the Ouija board or committing extreme acts of evil or doing inviting it in, summoning it in some way. There's all different kinds of ways to start a demonic haunting. And it will start out usually with knocking noises or cold spots or bad odors. Often we'll focus on one person in a family or a, a group, usually the, the most vulnerable person, person with perhaps a mental you know, fragility in some way, mental illness perhaps, or just emotional problems or even someone who's of delicate health or the youngest or something along those lines, the person who invited it in, a child often. And it basically infests them. And people around them think they're crazy. Look, I haven't seen anything. What are you talking about? It's very clever. It's, and at some point it ramps up. And that's when you get this huge outbreak where the whole family is enveloped in it. And the person is being attacked and, you know, thrown across the room, levitated, choked, cuts on their body, bitten. And I mean, it's horrendous. And at some point, they will try to, you know, leads to infestation, to obsession, to possession. And like one guy I talked to had this problem and his friend started provoking the ghost. He's like, look, here's the cold spot. Step inside of it. You can feel it. And he's playing with it. And his friend's like, Whitney is his name. Don't do that. The other guy's name was Paul Delgado. He's like, but it's cool. It's, you should try it. It's a rush. And when he's like, don't do that. You don't know what you're playing with. Because this ghost would always manifest whenever, you know, people tried to say, hey, there's nothing to it. And it would, bam, shut the door or something. It was a heavy-duty ghost. I think it was a demonic ghost. But finally, they went to bed, and Paul's laying at the foot of the bed while Whitney's in bed, 
And Paul's like, it's coming, it's coming at me, can you feel it? And suddenly he was slammed to the ground, started screaming, talking in these in tongues, in this foreign language. And Whitney jumps up and tries to lift him up, can't lift him up. He is pinned to the ground. This is something these demonic ghosts can do. This is a haunting going to the end stage. And Paul, Whitney tries to lift him up and Paul attacks him, scratches his face, and is basically battling him. And finally, this seizure, if you will, is over and Paul wakes up with no memory of it. All he knows is he's crying and he doesn't feel good at all. He's completely freaked out. He's really kind of dissociated and ill and learn <laughs> the lesson the hard way. You do not mess around with bad spirits. That's a demonic haunting. Uh, it's a different thing. It's not UFOs. There's some really fundamentalist beliefs out there that UFOs are demonic in origin. And I've picked out every book I could find on demonology. I studied all the works of, you know, Ed and Lorraine Warren and all the people who are, you know, what do you call them? Exorcists. I looked into it. <laughs> And I can tell you with pretty good certainty that this is completely separate. And, you know, I'm going to have to write about this because this is a problem. I've debated some of these guys who are like hardcore. This is demonic. And I'm like, okay, well, let's go. Let's let's do this. You know, there is a biblical, you know, by their fruits you shall know them. You know, a quote directly from the Bible about angels and demons. And when you look at People who have a UFO encounter, what's happening to them? Are they being killed? No. They are being psychically awakened. They are being healed. They have an absolute spiritual transformation. It can be a hard, long road for people. I'm not going to deny that it, it's not scary, especially in the beginning. But it's not demonic. It's not. This is my assessment, you know. And I'm willing to debate it with people because I think I have the ammunition. Now, I've got the first-hand cases that speak to what the UFO experience is. If you think it's demonic, prove it. Prove it. That, that would be, show me your evidence. It's hard to prove anything. Uh, that's, you know, when it comes to UFOs and ghosts and such. But we really need to get down to brass tacks here and think clearly. And really use our own abilities of discernment and searching for the truth. There's a big difference between belief and knowledge. And that's what I found is people who are putting forth this demonic theory are relying on belief, faith. They have no firsthand experiential knowledge or firsthand cases to back this up. I dug through the cases of MUFON looking for people who've like called to Jesus to save them from a UFO. I found a couple. I found many, many more cases that speak towards UFOs being angelic in nature as opposed to demonic. But this is all, we're getting into the realms of philosophy here, which is fine. I loved, I loved philosophy in college. I'm like, wow, this is interesting. <laughs> it's the meta of all of it, man. It's the core underlining principle of all of this. Because even in the angelic, the argument on the, again, devil's advocate, other people would say, well, that's a manufacturable 
feeling that they saw them as angels. And I just think it's fascinating. I think the whole phenomena, I've changed so much with the way that I see this. And I know you have as a researcher as well. We all start nuts and bolts and then we open our minds to all kinds of cool stuff. So the, the questions just keep coming, which is what's so fascinating about this. And I, I've abandoned the idea of certainty, my friend. I am, um, Preston, I can tell you with uh, absolute certainty, actually, that I have one belief in this place. The rest are just ideas and I'm fine if they change. My belief is, is that temporary truths are all, all I'm able to comprehend. I'm only able to comprehend a little bit of truth and I'll know it for damn sure, just like I knew that those things were nuts and bolts and coming from Zeta Reticuli or whatever. Not that they're not, but it, it it's a it was a temporary truth in my in my path, which means now if I can just see things as all around me is just the way that I feel about it now with new information, I may change the way I feel about it. And I think if you can just be there like we all are, it's a beautiful place to be, man. So I definitely wanted to ask you about the insides of some of these UFOs because I asked uh, Denise Stoner, you know, are you familiar with her work? Okay. What the inside of a UFO smelled like. So this is going to be a two-part question, okay? What are the most common smells reported in UFOs like alien farts and stuff like that? Um, or and, and also some unique features as far as the inside of UFOs go because sometimes you hear they step inside of it and it's like Narnia. It's like a massive world on the inside that looks too big to be what the craft showed up at. So two part smells, size of the inside. What's going on with that? Yeah. Well, I'm glad you asked that. Cause I ended up doing a whole study on the smell of UFOs and ETs. Yeah. <laughs> and one, one thing I noticed immediately was they can break down into two main categories. Cause one category is definitely organic. And this is very important because this speaks towards these being living beings, uh, of an organic nature like us. And people go inside a UFO, they report organic odors. And some say, well, you know, it's a little stuffy, cheesy. Uh, the the streamer described it as being like a locker room, one of the rooms. It was kind of smelly. Uh, I've heard a number of different descriptions. I heard one person say, it smells like chicken, which I kind of just dismissed, but it was funny. Uh, but I had a couple of people say, well, you know, Franks and beans, kind of a Franks and beans odor. And I've kind of dismissed that too until I heard it a couple of times. I'm like, well, okay. Uh, some people, well, the Strieber described the ETs. He smelled them perfect, you know, up close. He asked them. He says they had a kind of a cinnamony smell. And I found that kind of interesting because I've heard that before. Other people have said woodsy, that exact word. Uh, just sort of a delicate, subtle, should, uh, probably a better word, body odor which you would expect from any living being. So, yeah, there's organic odors for sure. Uh, sometimes people will describe are more like chemical odors or something that speaks towards these being machines because people will describe like ozone, which is something which can appear when there's you know, very strong electric fields around and can sometimes have, I mean, doesn't necessarily smell great. I know it smells good after a, a you know a fresh rain and people are smelling hints of ozone, but large amounts smell kind of sulfurish. Uh, and I think that's where some of the people have their fodder, you know, their ammunition to say, oh, listen, it smells like sulfur, it's demonic. Well, eggs smell like sulfur. Are eggs demonic? I mean, come on, you cannot make that jump. But yeah, absolutely, people will describe metallic, odors um electrical odors chemical um one guy described the interior of a ufo 
So it kind of smelled almost like a fish tank. The air was a little bit different. Uh, it's usually slightly cooler inside, though that varies as well. Uh, but I think it's an important distinction here because this speaks towards these being machines that use high amounts of electricity. Uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of studies of UFO odors. I found a couple before I did my own, and I ended up doing surveying about 70 cases, which people reported an odor. And that's what I found. So uh, there's still lots of room for you know research in this area. But as far as the what a, the interior of a UFO looks like, it's super interesting what yeah, you mentioned. Yeah. Because I started getting hints of that certainly in the literature, but on my own. It's like, how big is, are these UFOs? We do often see the rounded room with indirect lighting. That's almost a rule. And so funny to hear people who are trying so hard to describe this. <laughs> like, you know, it was bright in there, but there was I couldn't see a light bulb. It was as if the walls were glowing, but they weren't really glowing. It was like the air itself was light. The air was, you know, it's funny to hear them saying this. <laughs> Because that's the rule. Um, I don't think I have any cases of people seeing your typical square cornered room. I'm sure there's some out there, but the vast majority describe white walls or silver walls, dull usually. Some light blue, perhaps, or tan. But generally speaking, it's white, off-white, or metallic. Uh and yeah, people will see a craft and it looks maybe 20, 30 feet across, perhaps bigger. It's hard to tell often because people don't have any frame of reference when they're seeing something perhaps up in the sky and they're being drawn up to it. They realize it's a little bigger than they thought when they get close to it. But there's something called doorway amnesia. And the vast majority of people who are taken kind of black out for a second. They don't quite remember how they get in. It's not always true, um, but here's an example of a gentleman I interviewed who had a craft appear. Uh, he was basically invited on board. <laughs> he had a friend who was a contactee who arranged a whole setup, and this UFO appeared while he's on a Navy ship. No one else could see it, strangely. This ship is 600 feet long, and he said this craft was quite a bit larger, and he's pulled up inside of it. And he finds himself in a room that's about 50 feet across. And he's afraid to turn around and look at the ETs. He's pretty shook up. This is a fully conscious experience. And they're communicating with him telepathically. And one of the first questions he asked is, where are you from? And they said, well, we'll show you. And he said, the room, because I asked him, he said, well, a star chart appeared. And he saw the solar system and stars leading out into the distance and way, way off in the distance was a little red light and it was blinking on and off. And I said, that's us. He's like, well, where is that? And he's like, well, you can't really explain it to you, but here's the name of it. He couldn't repeat the name. He said it had lots of consonants and it was just a word, foreign word. And I'm like, okay, well, how far away was it? And he's like, well, you know, it was off in the distance. I'm like, well, how? How big was this room? I asked him. He says, well, you know, that's the thing. And he gave me this look. I interviewed him face to face. You know, sometimes it's telephone interviews or what have you, Skype. 
but I interviewed him face to face numerous times and on the phone and put him on the radio and talked to him till the day he died. And he gave me this look like, I don't know how to explain it to this. This guy's not going to believe me. I'm like, just, you know, just tell me how big was this room? He says, well, it started out about 50 feet. But when I asked where they came from, this room expanded to twice its size. It grew. And I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. And he's looking at me to see if I, you know, thinking he's crazy. I'm, I'm like, just, just describe it. And he says, yeah, I mean, I don't even know what to tell you. This room kept changing size. And to me, this was a, a red flag that he's telling the truth because I keep hearing this. I had interviewed another person, Bill Foster, not too long before that, where he asked the ETs, how big is this craft? Seems like it's different every time I come on board. He says, this is one of the few times the ET laughed out loud. Gray, a gray. What's his laugh sound like? Uh, he's just normal. Like a cackle? There's, no, it's a normal laugh. Just like a, a human <laughs> laugh? Oh, yeah. wow. Um, telepathic, but uh, he said the ET told him that the room is as big as we need it to be. And seemed kind of just amused by his astonishment. Now, these guys are not that removed from us. They are basically what we would call human. They're people. This is what I'm finding out from contactees who've moved past the fear barrier. You know, uh, Bill Foster had. He had had initially missing time and recovered. We called it under hypnosis, but ended up having fully conscious experiences and had interacted with them so much. He's like, got over the fear. It's like, oh, here we go again. You know, why, what's going on? And you start, that's when you start to get to the goodness of it. And you start to realize, okay, they're not here to hurt me. Uh, and you can develop a relationship with them. And they will take you down to the engine room. They'll take you up to the observation deck and they'll show you the star field or Earth or the moon. That's most common, those three things. They usually show people the Earth far below or a field of stars. Occasionally the moon, more rarely the Saturn, and most rare, another planet entirely. So I have that in, in I think, well, the next book, Humanoids and High Strangeness. I don't know if I have it in this one. I probably do. <laughs> but it does happen. They'll take you to the control room. And this is so cool. Because I'd already have people describe how they were set down in the seat and allowed to fly the craft. Dolly Saffron describes that in the book Symmetry. But in this, this book, Onboard UFO Encounters, a gentleman by the name of Jay Gardner had that experience. Woke up, he's, let's see, 12 years old, hearing his name being called. He's like, oh my gosh, they're here again. He, and he looks out his window and they're like, come on, come on, come on, come on. It was a human-looking ET this time. You, it's usually grays, grays and human-looking, and sometimes sort of a praying mantis. So he goes out and he's in his pajamas, goes across the street, he's pulled on board this craft, and they're like, we want to show you something and took him up into the control room and sat him down in the seat and said, would you like to fly the craft? And he said, sure. And he said it was a little kind of joystick type device. And he took it and rammed that craft right into the ground, <laughs> through the ground. And you could see the soil going by on the windshield. It's like, oh, no. I'm like, don't worry. Don't worry. You're fine. <laughs> Here, let, let us pull it out for you. You're okay. Don't worry. But took him to see Saturn. And basically, his, the message was, you need to study. You know, you need to 
work on building your knowledge because that's what's important in life. Do good at school. Take it seriously. Learn your subjects, mathematics and history and science. That was their message to him. Uh, but it's one of several examples I have where people are basically brought up to the control room and told how to fly the craft. One guy from yeah, Louisiana, Tim is his name, had that same experience. And he didn't get to sit down in the seat. <laughs> he sat next to these two grays. He's like, Preston, these guys were teenagers. I'm like, what are you talking about? He says, they could barely fly the thing themselves. They were learning. And they're like, oh, let's go here. Let's go there. And it's darting all around. And they're playing tag with these other UFOs. And he's standing between them, watching them do it. Uh, another guy from England, same sort of thing. Uh, so this is, you know, why I've come to sort of the viewpoint I have. Like, this is not nefarious. They're not trying to hurt people. They're trying to educate them, guide them, teach them. If you have a conversation with ETs, uh, it's probably going to be along the lines of, you know, if, if it's anything beyond, don't be afraid, have no fear, no harm will come to you, uh, we're not here to hurt you. It's going to be something along the lines of, what do you want to do with your life? How can we help you? Would you like to see the craft? You need to tell people to stop putting out greed and negativity. It's destroying your planet. Tell everyone that nuclear power or nuclear bombs is the wrong pathway. Why are you polluting your forests? Why are you chopping down your forests? Why are you polluting your waters? The air you breathe is not good for you. Are you aware of this? <laughs> These are the messages they give. And they're very, very... One of their main agendas is to wake people up to our own abilities. So they were very much, particularly when people are kids, we'll put them down and be like, let's do telekinesis exercises. You know, try to move that object. Levitate. You know, try to levitate. Uh, let's do telepathy exercises. What do you think I'm thinking right now? They were they're trying to raise people's psychic abilities. And this is so much the rule among contactees. They're almost always profoundly psychic. If not before their experience, definitely afterwards. Absolutely. I mean, I've got a bunch of cases that speak to that. This is why I feel like, you know, we don't need to fear these guys. This is good news for us. People are overlaying their own cultural values or lack thereof on the ETs. Because what do we do on this planet to each other, to people we don't know? We distrust them. We steal, we lie, we cheat. We do a lot worse than that. I don't even want to get into the horrible things we do to each other. And people are overlaying that on ETs who aren't doing that. We're not. We just expect them to because we're so horrible to each other. Huh? So this it's a real battle for them to bring a person on board, and they're in a complete panic. And they're like, oh my gosh, why is this person acting the way they're, they're almost psychotic in their fear? And that's true. When a person's in a complete state of panic, they're not a good observer. They are out of control in their own behavior. Sorry, I get all, I'm getting a little bit of my, <laughs> a rant here because it's just an important point. I can't stand it when people say, they're here to hurt us. They're demonic. They're evil. No, 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 no. 
what um what is your favorite um onboard encounter that you've heard about that uh is just one of the wildest ones one of the most bizarre that sort of goes against the grain as far as the common uh story that you've heard oh gosh well there's that one i told you uh which is you know where the lady was involved in that rescue (laughs) yeah yeah um gosh well uh in the book symmetry you know which i that's definitely my favorite you know onboard experiences in symmetry dolly saffron has all kinds of experiences and one that really struck a chord with me where she was repeatedly taken to what we would call animal husbandry centers or arboretums where they have all these plants and animals and very large what we would call mother ships, which are a lot bigger than you might think because they have lakes filled with fish and just, you know, what you've heard of a Dyson sphere. Yeah. Um, she was taken to one of those at least four, five times. Didn't even realize that she was, she thought she was on another planet. And they were like, no, 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 no. <laughs> this is a artificial structure. And I don't have a whole lot of descriptions of that from other people. That's why I like her story because it's a lot more extensive than anyone else I've ever talked to. And in addition to that, she's got proof, evidence, a lot of photographic evidence. I've seen the UFOs myself. I've had some really profound experiences with her. I've become a participant in her story. And that's why I think her story is so valuable, uh, which I didn't talk about because I wanted her story to stand on its own. You know, it's not my story. <laughs> you can either take it or leave it. That's up to you. I'm presenting the evidence. But I know personally from personal experience that it's real because I've been there and done that with her. So, yeah, her story is probably my favorite because they gave her the controls they let her fly to saturn threw the rings around it went over to the moon flew around that landed on the surface of the moon taught her how to fly the craft which was a four or five year process mind you of her being taken twice a week for two three hours they'd always bring her back just minutes after they took her because they can pull you out of our time stream into a sort of another I don't fully understand it, to be honest, but another dimension. Uh, But she finally learned how to do it, how to pilot the craft. It's all very, their technology is psychic based. And the craft themselves are embodied and alive. And this is what I loved about her story, because she's answering all these questions that other people are sort of dancing around trying to figure out. They tell me, oh, these craft are, you know, I think they're alive. I'm like, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, you know, it just felt like a living being. Uh, but she described that. She's like, oh, yeah, I, I communicate with it. Its name is Talata. But they told, taught her how to, you know, it's a difference between traveling interplanetary distances, which they can travel, I think it was 20, 30,000 miles an hour, as opposed to interstellar, which is where you open up a light gate. And this entails extreme psychic ability and high amounts of electricity and harnessing Earth's and gravitational fields or, you know, the interplanetary 
interstellar rather they open up a light gate and pop through it and then she was able to do that you know piloting the craft for the first time and went to a giant you know planet a gas giant all purple and blues uh yeah her i could talk about her experiences for a long time because That's fascinating amazing one that was just, if i could this is so weird <laughs> because once i asked her you know i was doing this study of people who betty andreason if you've if you heard of her yep. is a Andreessen. well-known contactee who describes seeing the ets come down and they shrunk this guy into a tiny little two-foot figure and took him on board a ufo that was tiny she's like what the heck was that and like oh we call that deopulating you know what so okay i looked up that word it's not an english word uh, but that's what they call it and because i have other cases where people come back or go on board a ufo and they were sh shrunk or even larger one guy I talked to is like i'm so glad you're talking about this because i came back from my encounter three inches taller <laughs> i mean you got to be kidding he's like no 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 and it kept happening and i come back a little bit shorter and come i don't they're doing something to me well, this is what I thought about when you told the man uh, that the room doubled or it was as big as we need it to be. Because if it's if the room's as big as it needs to be, all they need to do is change your perception of it. And a couple of ways to do that would be to shrink you. So if what you're talking about is true, then maybe this is the case of these people who talk about that the insides are much larger appearing than it, they thought it would be on the outside. And it's because they got shrunk when they went in there. You know, maybe that transition process is of a shrinking. You think of those uh, cases of the really small, there's a great case in Japan, damn it, what's that Japan case called in the 70s, uh, where they found the little hat-shaped, sombrero-shaped UFO, and the kids put it in the backpack, and then it disappeared, and then they put it in a cage, and then it disappeared, do you remember? I think I remember that, yeah. I yeah, haven't looked this, into it now. Yeah, yeah but. this little tiny, tiny little UFO thing, and who knows, could have been government, whatever, but... To say that maybe the occupants can shrink in size, and maybe this is what going interstellar is, it's more of an Ant-Man thing where you go down, and maybe like we're giants, maybe this is the biggest thing out there, but every time they go to another planet or whatever, it's sub-atomic, sub you know what I mean? Well, if, I, I don't think we can rule it out. Um, I don't know that that's exactly the explanation behind these craft being bigger on the inside, because there is a case from Leonard Stringfield, <laughs> the crash retrieval guy, who interviewed a, a photographer who with a top secret clearance who was told to photograph a 30 foot wide ufo went inside and it was not 30 feet on the inside it was a gymnasium yeah, yeah so yeah, this yeah. is how they have an understanding of space time and dimensions that's far beyond ours where they can a ufo is like a doctor who tardis yeah type of thing exactly because denise toner talked about this that her bedroom when she opened the door she was inside the ufo now like it wasn't her bedroom where her bedroom was was the entire ufo yeah they can do that they can actually come right flying into a person's home in much the same way that they walk through a wall they can you know their ufo can come right into a house land pick you up and come right up holy shit so i've had a few people describe that like i was laying in bed and suddenly i was <laughs> could you imagine the room started to change <laughs> you've got your bog on the couch and you just all of a sudden know the ufo you're just not sure what's going on <laughs> but just oh my real quick because I, I asked dolly saffron about this i'm like i don't suppose you've ever seen anything like betty andreason described because i was doing a whole study of it and pulling out a bunch of cases and I know she's my go-to gal. I'm 
if it's real, she's probably heard of it. And she's like, well, actually, no, I, sure, I did have this experience that I don't fully understand. She was on board once, and they brought this gentleman on board and took him into a room. And, you know, she's got some free time. She's flying around these craft. Money. She is the real deal. She's on board when they're pulling people on board, and she's there to, like, calm down. I'm here. You're going to be okay. You're just being healed. You're being checked up. Everything's fine. And some are like, yay, I'm here again. And others are like, oh, my God, what's going on? She's seen it all. But this guy was brought on board and pulled to another room, and she followed because she was curious. And she's like, okay, just don't interfere. Stand back. Put him into this container and shrunk the guy down to two feet. And... Off he went. And she's like, I've got questions. <laughs> and they're like, okay. <laughs> she says, can I try that? And they're like, no, 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 no. They're like, well, why did you do that? And I said, well, you know, got our reasons. Easier to uh, eat. <laughs> Stop. Snack <laughs> size. <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> but she's like, they're like, no, well, there is a macro universe and there, there's a micro universe. You know, it's, yes. everything is not just one size. You know, right. there's, there's a lot more complicated stuff going on than you're aware of. You know, we can't really get into it right now, but that's the explanation they gave her. So it took about an hour for them to shrink this guy down. But that's just wild when you think about it, because, you know, there was that movie, The Incredibles, uh, Shrinking, or you know, with Daryl Hannah, remember she grew 50 feet tall? Uh, after being struck by a ufo there was a movie i don't remember that that's awesome though yeah the, no and then there's the incredible shrinking man and um, there's some you know i honey i shrunk the kids sure oh yeah um yeah um uh inner space have you ever seen that inner space remember that movie yeah, with, uh, Dennis Quaid. yeah there you go that's a good pull uh, Meg Ryan when she was hot. What about um, the, the, the idea is maybe they're shrinking them because they're easier to feed and they're easier to uh, clean up their poops. You only need a little dog bag if you've got a little guy running around for a long interstellar travel. Rather than a human being, you've got to pump a bunch of calories into and, you know, get a pooper scooper after. You know what I mean? I don't know. I, could be I, I would be surprised if that was the reason. I think it probably has to do with the, <laughs> the environment they're being taken to or coming from. Fair enough. Uh, or the dimensions, uh, because that is part of this. You know, going on board a UFO is in some ways akin to having a near-death experience because you are traveling interdimensionally and, and ETs are doing all this stuff that we consider, you know, uh, technological. Like they're levitating and they're walking through walls. Some of this is psychic. Because if you look at the history of psychic abilities on this planet with people like yogis and monks and the saints, we have the ability to levitate. I wrote a whole book, Human Levitation, and that ties into this. There are people who have been reported to walk through walls, who can do apports, who can do all the things that we see the ETs doing. Uh, and we're labeling it as you know, interdimensional or technological when really they're just people like us. And that is an another message so many of the ETs give to contactees, is you are us, we are you, we are one. You are just like us. You were us in a past life. Um, we are all share a common heritage. That's what the ETs keep telling people over and over. We all have genetics. 
we're all humanoids of some form. And if you look at the diversity on this planet between regular humans, and it's all just one race, we've got different ancestries, but we're one race. Uh, you've got tiny little people, three feet, four feet tall, all the way up to people who are seven or eight foot tall. And every variation of skin color and eye shape and nose and ears and everything is completely different. You could stick a gray in there and there would be no real difference in terms of the variation. It would be the same type of variation we see on this planet. And that's what we're seeing throughout the universe. The humanoids of all different kinds. They're not alien. They are people. And I think we're struggling with semantics to try to describe all this because we love labels. We love names. If we can give something a name, well, now we understand it. <laughs> to a certain degree, I think it's helpful, but it can also be limiting and misleading. And there's, uh, it's, I think it's just important that people understand that we're not that far removed from the ETs. They're much more like us than they are different. I think that would be the point I'm trying to make. So interesting, man. Again, your philosophy on this, your the look you've had at it, the the cases that you come up with. So uh, we're going to end it here, my friend. But um, all the ways to find you, as well as the previous episodes and conversations you've had on the show, will be located down below. Uh, Healing Power of UFOs. I'm going to go ahead and link this one. It's one that I have uh, here in-house, uh, just pick up constantly, as well as uh, this one here, because I found this at a bookshop, and I was very excited to get this. I wanted to ask you about this cover guy. Do you think that uh, perhaps all the beings at a high level are mantis, because they're reported as that, and this is the form that they show us because it's the best they can do to sort of morph into something human-ish, to sort of to buffer the gap between our mental ability to accept them as mantis beings you know maybe they show people some mantises but not everybody and they seem grays the typical gray seems pretty mantis like if a mantis was trying to be a human it would seem like that would be the form it would take so i'm just curious about that man and then i'll let you run and i thank you for your time sir this is always amazing to talk to you dude yeah that's a great question because there are what we call screen memories people can have an encounter and come away with a memory of an owl or a deer or a superhero or a barbie doll or you know, any anything really. Uh, I've got lots of cases where little kids thought they were clowns coming in to visit them. I think this is, to some extent, us overlaying our own cultural beliefs and to some extent them taking advantage of what might seem less fearful. So, yeah, Gray can come in and you will see a normal-looking person. But I think the Greys look like the Greys. And the reason I say that is because we have so many cases from people who are widely separate who are seeing exactly the same thing. Uh, some are tall praying mantis that, you know, anywhere from nine to upwards and 15 feet tall in some cases. Those are a little bit of outliers. But I have two cases, three now, my own. Generally, it's more nine feet. So you have praying mantis, you have grays all the way up to six or seven feet, down to three feet. But you have little blue beings with flat faces and tiny eyes and have all whites who look very human, except they're very slender and their hair is very thin and their eyes are quite large and bluish. I think these are their real appearances. I really do. I can't prove it. 
but having talked to so many people who basically asked that question, you know, what do you really look like? This is their real appearance. Now, it's also a bit of a trick question because, you know, this is our true appearance, right? Well, no, not necessarily. If you go out of body and you are out there for long enough, you turn into a light being. I've experienced this myself. So our true appearance is a little different. <laughs> All of us are entities made of basically light. Uh, and we are just dialing out our genetics in different ways, depending on the environment we're in. So I think to some extent, yeah, that's true. If you, they do put on a certain appearance. But I, I think that's temporary. And I think the grays are the grays as we see them with all the variations of color from gray to off-white to bone white to yellow, green, very rare, blue, more common, pink, certainly. And the praying mantis are usually greenish to gray to brown to white. Uh, human looking, absolute human looking, looking just like you. Long hair. They wish. <laughs> <laughs> broad shoulders quite muscular but ge genetically you know pretty uh free of any defects but all skin types certainly because people are like oh nordics that's racist i'm like well i don't call them nordics because that's not accurate i've got many cases where people looked mesa american one guy said you know he looked kind of iranian to me i'm like really kind of asian too <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Asian's a very common one. Yeah, like spot on Asian too. Not even like, oh, it, a little bit different than Asian. People are like, no, straight up Asian. Like not elongated, long exactly. face, whatever. Yeah. Human looking. It's very cool. And it raises all kinds of questions about who we are. Uh, and I don't think we evolved here on this planet because that's what the ETs are telling people. Like, no, 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 <laughs> you did not come from here. At one point, you actually lived on Mars, just so you know. I've got three or four solid contactee cases where the that's what the ETs told them. So, lots to learn. We live in a wide, infinite universe. We're immortal beings with unbelievable abilities that we're only beginning to tap into and understand. And it's what a great gift it is to, to be a part of this universe. And there's just, it's an unbelievable gift. We should all embrace it. <laughs>